0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats, and I'm your host, Kate Young. Preserved, they don't burn.
1: The bitterness softens. California has been burning for years. When I lived in L.A., I drank water pumped from Colorado, lemons from my grandmother's tree, two orbs turning in my hands. Under
0: the faucet, clear, cold, unfiltered. This week on the show, we've got poetry and pie. We hear from a poet who incorporates food imagery into her work, and we talk with the authors of How to Write a Novel in 20 Pies. Plus, Daniela Richardson reviews a podcast that turns a critical eye towards the wellness and weight loss industry. That's all just ahead. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. We're starting today's show with poetry. Melanie Tefajan is an award-winning poet from the Pacific Northwest. She currently lives in Raleigh and teaches writing at North Carolina State University. She spoke with producer Josephine McRobbie about her use of food imagery in poems. When I was in grad school,
1: I was bringing in all these poems for workshop, and of course you start to see what your sort of obsessions are the more and more that you write. And it was actually my, my classmates that were saying to me, you write a lot about food. My name is Melanie Tefasian. I'm a poet and writer and also a teacher. My writing and food have sort of grown up together my whole life. I've been interested in food. My favorite gift as a kid was an easy-bake oven, but I also have had a lot of food-related jobs, so I've worked on organic farms, I've worked as an oyster shucker, I've worked pressing juice, and all of these things I was doing sort of in conjunction with also writing. I think a lot of writers write about food, especially poets. It's part of the everyday. This one is, um, well, I won't explain it. I'll just read it. Oh, actually, one thing I will say about this one is that it's a sonnet. So it's 14 lines, and the end lines follow a sonnet rhyme scheme. Preserved Lemons Preserved, they don't burn The bitterness softens California has been burning for years When I lived in L.A., I drank water pumped from Colorado Lemons from my grandmother's tree Two orbs turning in my hands Under the faucet, clear, cold, unfiltered. Painted lemons swirled across an apron's hem. I tucked the yellow wheels, sliced and salted into blue glass jars. All spring, I pulled them from the fridge, fork-skewered the gelatinous fruit, draped them gingerly over cod, sucked meat from thin bones. Of course the pain is in the process, absolute, Who decides anymore what someone owns? I believe it all mine. I continue to fail. Slicing more this winter, I suck my thumbs, burning hangnail. Two food poems that come to mind that I love. Blackberry Eating by Galway Canal, because it's so sonically engaging, you feel the the sweetness of the blackberry but there's also it's just a fun poem to read because it sounds great and then the other is frying trout while drunk by Lynn Emanuel another one that's so rich in in memory it's about her mother frying trout while drunk and you know there's a lot of sort of visceral imagery in that poem that is in some ways devastating but also um, I don't know, a, a way of, of, of looking at that mother character in a sort of complicated, loving, but definitely far from perfect sort of way. So those are two that come to mind. I went to Armenia in 2013 for the first time as a birthright volunteer. So my, I have a grandfather who's Armenian, and I was there for about eight months And during that time, a couple of those months, I lived in Shushi, which is now it has been taken over by Azerbaijan, but at the time it was part of Artsakh. So I lived with a family there. And then a few years later, I was in the Peace Corps and I lived in Albania. One of the poems that I'm going to read is called On Occupation, and it's thinking about, you know, who does land belong to and what sort of forces have occupied that land. Um, Both of those places were under Ottoman occupation, and so they have... In common, they have foods that have been passed down from that time of occupation, but then there's also a history of oppression based on that occupation. And at the moment, the road between Armenia and this disputed territory of Artsakh or Nagorno Karabakh is closed. And there's about 100,000 ethnic Armenians who the road is closed, so they aren't able to have food imported in a lot of homes it's things like bananas or potatoes or things that you don't that you think of as readily accessible that when it's closed off then obviously it's a humanitarian issue as well in addition to being you know you want to be able to celebrate your culture and a big part of that is feeding each other this poem is organized in sections bread salt and heart which are sort of tenets of hospitality that come from albania greeting guests with Bread and salt is also common in um, Armenia and a number of other countries. So that's the sort of way that this poem is, is sectioned. On occupation, one, bread. All afternoon we crack walnuts, pick shells from meat, a pyramid of little brains, glossy yolks cradled in walls of flour, kneading, sugar water on the stove, then the rolling and rolling, the long stick and flick of the wrist, Baklava. In Kruja, I don't want to write about the women when they jumped, how they held their babies to their chests, wind whipping crumbs from their skirts, hair. I don't want to write about their tears or the silence after. In the apartment, we watch crows drop walnuts from six floors up. Inside, a grandfather cracks two in the palm of his hand, feeds the children. Two, Salt. Before the wedding, we fill white napkins with salt, twist and tuck them under bras for safety from the evil eye. We dance with pinkies linked, circle tables, twist hips, dodge young waiters hefting meat, platter after platter, kebabs and pork steaks. We descend from the mountains each summer to bathe in the sea. The iodized whiteness keeps us alive. 3. Heart We eat in the butcher's house. Outside, dried persimmons hang like wrinkled worlds, an orange maze, hundreds in the window as we graze off Russian china. I mistake the heart for brain, doused in red sauce, lost in ricotta-stuffed cannelloni. The man refuses to speak a Turkish word in his house, so we are lost when it comes to pickles or eggplant, an empty silence when asked to pass the... or the... No one can decide on kom so we say it anyway. Later we drink, and tea made from wild thyme. Failing to find the word for thank you, we settle on grazie. This was actually an experience in Albania, but similar in Armenia. There is some resistance to say words that are Turkish, because you you want to hold on to your language, right? A man was saying he didn't want to say this phrase that's really common in um, Albania, which is avash avash, meaning like slowly, slowly. He was saying you need to say it the Albanian way, not the Turkish way. When you're learning a language, and especially like coming from having the experience in Armenia, coming into Albania, there was a number of words that I knew already because they were the Turkish word. In this example, pickles and eggplant. And so I was just thinking about being in a space where people are asserting to speak their own language. I think in poetry, you're always trying to tap into at least I am as a writer, tap into the five senses and an easy way to do that is through food because food is sight and smell and taste and touch. But it's also memory and it's also meaning, right? Food can be a way of expressing love or a way of being sort of sexy or a way of connecting with romantic love or familial love or a way of mourning, a way of celebrating. It's there in, in, in all moments that have to do with human life.
0: Pajan is currently working to develop a course on food imagery in poetry. Find more about her work on our website, eartheats.org. That piece comes to us from producer Josephine McRobbie. We've got pie and novel writing. Coming up after a short break, stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. Next, we're going to talk about pie. Regular listeners of this show know that pie is always a welcome topic for me, but this time we're going to complicate things by also talking about writing. We're talking with the authors of the book How to Write a Novel in 20 Pies, Sweet and Savory Tips for the Writing Life. Amy Wallen is the author and recipe tester, and the book is heavily and delightfully illustrated by Emil
2: Wilson, I'm Amy Wallen. I'm an author, editor, uh, teacher, and baker, and candlestick maker.
3: (laughs) And I'm Emil Wilson, and I'm an illustrator.
2: I started our conversation
0: by asking Amy a reasonable question, one that might be on your mind, too. How did she come up with the idea to write a book about novel writing and pie
4: making?
2: Well, it was a combination of, I guess, two ideas that came together. And maybe that's how pie works, too. But I was standing in front of a classroom and realized I'm telling the same stories over and over to this this group of people who are looking at me as though I have all the answers to how to write a novel. And... I wanted to write them down, so I thought I'm going to write all of those down. At the same time, I knew that the story was going to be about how to survive writing a novel, really, because everybody takes a different journey. And for me, the way I survived it was comfort food of pie. I've been a pie baker for a long time. I never really put the pie and and the writing together until I started realizing that that was... What I would do when I, you know, got stumped or, you know, felt like this is never going to end or I'm never going to get a, you know, book written or a book published. And I would bake a pie and eat it up and move on, you know, as a great way of sort of realizing, oh, OK, I'd taken a break, stuff in my belly and and then feeling like I could keep going.
0: It's not as much a book about how to write a book I mean, you you definitely do include some lessons on craft, but it's more, it seems to me, strategies for pushing through the difficult times and the torture of the book writing process. Uh, Would you like to talk a little bit more about that?
2: The title is a bit of a, of a misnomer in a way in how to write a novel. The surviving the writing life, I think, is really the truth of it. When I first started writing it before Emil came along and was helping me with the visual part of it, I was calling it Pi-severance because I really felt like that's how I persevered through uh, the whole journey was, was through Pi. And so the How to Write a Novel in 20 Pies is, is sardonic in the same way that the the narrative of the book is also sardonic about, you know, I want people to have fun, laugh when they're having a really tough time, pick up the book, you know, read a random chapter that maybe something about they're struggling with, like there's one chapter, The Joy of Rejection. So you've been rejected, you know, read that, maybe laugh about it, laugh about your own foibles, your own process, or maybe we can even cry together. And then there's always a recipe at the end where you can make a pie after you've, you know, cried over all those agents that said no.
0: Can you say anything about why pie is the focus and not just sort of baking in general or cooking in
2: general? Well, to me, pie is what well, my own personal story. I was a big chicken pot pie fanatic as a kid and grew up and that's actually why I ended up becoming a pie baker cuz I wanted to make homemade pies. I got kind of tired of the, you know, as I got a little older, the Swanson's pies that came in the little frozen boxes were not my thing. And then it just kind of evolved into where people found out I made pies. So they would ask me to make them a pie or for a gift for a friend or things like that. And then I've been doing this big bake sale every November. There's actually a, in the writing world, there's something called NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month. And the goal is to write 50,000 words by the end of the month so you write every single day. And I change it to nano pie mo and I bake a pie every day for the month of November and I auction them off and the auction the money goes to the the nonprofit where I work. So so I guess pie was just my life, you know. I I do make cakes. I've been a big failure at bread every time I've ever made it, but I do bake other things. But I think pie is also just kind of fun. Pie is really a comfort food more than, say, cake. You can't make a savory cake, although I I guess you could. Maybe somebody's tried that. Maybe somebody should. And there's just so many different variations on pie. So So you also talk about movement as a key element
0: in the process of maybe taking breaks from riding. And you talked about riding your bike or also gardening or walking, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you learned about how the brain works and why we often find ourselves making insightful connections while doing other things.
2: There's a little moment, and I'm, I'm not any kind of scientist or sociologist or researcher, but I, I was trying to figure out personally, why does our brain suddenly make a connection to something as though our subconscious decides okay, I'm going to give you this little secret tip now. Or like sometimes when we're falling asleep and an idea comes to us or we're making a pie and suddenly the answer to that chapter comes along or, like I said, riding a bike and you figure out, you know, how a scene is going to work. These things, I mean, and they can be anything. It doesn't even have to do about writing. I mean, sometimes you figure out, you know, how to like you know, solve the problem with how your kids are getting along or something, you know, I just had to, you, that something in your brain works. And and there is a, a theory to the chaos in our brain and how stepping away from it, it can settle. And that gives that space for our subconscious to take the information and sort the files, so to speak. And so, you know, there is so much chaos going on in our subconscious, but stepping away and being, you know, again, physical, you know, gardening is physical in one way, biking is another physical way. But, you know, it isn't about going to the gym and being fit kind of physical. But yeah, just sort of stepping away and being moving around and letting ourselves be outside of our situation, I guess. So.
0: Yeah, I wanted to also say, Emil, the the illustration that you have in this section is just brilliant. I think that any creative can relate to this there's a in the center it says At times when great writing ideas happen and then it's staring out the window falling asleep cooking dinner in the shower eavesdropping grocery sh- shopping stuck in traffic and um yeah, it's, it's really great all of
3: that
2: is very true i like the eavesdropping the best <laughs>
0: Well, just to talk a little bit about the illustrations. You don't go into it a lot in the book, but could you talk a little bit about the process of working together and figuring out these illustrations?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll just start by saying that, you know, I wrote the proposal first and then I knew I wanted something quirky and fun and I knew. Emil's work because we'd been friends and writing friends for a long time so I also knew he knew the writing world and what it was like to be a writer so I reached out to him and then he sent me some examples of what he was thinking about, and it was exactly what I felt. I felt like it meshed really well. And then we did a, a like a brainstorming session on how to do the proposal. But you know, from Emil's side, let him explain. Well, my
3: background is in advertising. All advertising projects are done in teams of two people—an art director and a copywriter—and so I that collaboration I I was used to. I think. I had done some illustration and some lettering as a side hustle, and this was very much traditionally the kind of stuff that you do in illustration where somebody writes the text and they send it to you, and when Amy would write a chapter, I would put it in a big binder and then start trying to figure out what things to draw. The publisher had wanted this to be a very visual book, so usually when you write an article, you're looking for like the four or five things that you're trying to make illustrations about. And in this book, (laughs) that bar was different because suddenly you had like eight to 10 illustrations per chapter. And the challenges came when, you know, you didn't have as many opportunities to make illustrations. I think because it was always going to be a very illustrated book, that made the project both fun and at times challenging.
2: Yeah, there were over... I think it's over 200 illustrations, right, Amal, That you had to do. So it was quite a big job.
3: And we knew that going into it, like that was part of the initial uh, agreement to do the book. And, you know, when you're like, 200 illustrations sounds like okay. And then when you start drawing it, you're like, well, that's five. I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Let's (laughs) go. And then you've got like 195 more to do. So you're like, I will just draw anything.
0: So. You have created a character who kind of stands in as the writer or the author. I mean, not Amy necessarily, but sort of the character of the author and um and also sometimes the the baker. And I was wondering if you could, for our listeners, describe what this character looks like.
3: So I, I wish the story to this was was more glamorous and creative than it is. But uh so the character is this, these sort of like deviously weird people that are in animal costumes, which sounds like I have no idea what that has to do with pie. And you would be absolutely <laughs> correct. There's nothing that has to do with pie. And the reason for that was because the time that we were doing the proposal, I was working on a project where I was drawing all these people in animal costumes. And I just thought, oh, I'll I'll use that for this. And it seemed to kind of bring a tone to the book that felt quirky in a way that you know, I I knew I didn't want to draw Amy, and I knew I didn't want to draw people because I think that that I just I, I that felt like a like it might be a problem. So I thought these characters kind of stood in for you know something that just felt a little bit more interesting. <sighs>
0: Okay, so you see it as multiple characters to where I was reading it as just kind of one person and then there are some others that sort of show up. But it's also true that like the 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 tops of it's kind of like they're in animal pajamas or something.
3: They're animal onesies. So for your listeners, they're like, what is this book that we're doing right here? But yes, they are all animal onesies. Um, And yeah.
0: I did notice that some of them had like short pointy ears and some of them had like longer, more rabbit ears and some of them had horns also. So I, I, I guess I can see now that it is more than one character. <laughs> yes.
2: And I, I kind of think of them as like wearing like they're all about comfort, too. You know, that was how I saw them when Emil first presented the first set to me, a set of illustrations, because <laughs> the, the onesie to me is sort of like, you know, that's what you wear when you're going to watch the Super Bowl all afternoon. Right. I need a pie a whole pie. And immediately
0: it does bring that humor and a lighter tone to the whole to the whole project as soon as you see that those characters. So, could you talk either of you about the role of humor and why you wanted
2: this to have that kind of tone?
3: Amy, do you want to take that first and then I'll
2: Sure. Yeah, because that was my intention originally because I knew like I said that this was a hard journey and I wanted it to be something that made people laugh so that when they're going through this, whether it's the writing or the agent search or waiting to hear from an editor or stuck on a chapter or whatever it is, I wanted them to, to know that it is hard and they should keep going. But also stop and have some fun along the way and laugh. Just like I think pie, you know, is my comfort food. Laughter is also my my comfort. You know, it's my comfort zone. It's where I go. So, you know, I want to watch Seinfeld, you know, before bed as opposed to, you know, a Holocaust movies. Usually.
3: I think that for me I wanted I I wanted the drawings to kind of be a commentary on what was writing and I was I was worried that it would get too sweet. And I wanted, mm-hmm. and also there's a, an element to Amy's writing and to Amy as a person that is, can be sarcastic and droll and witty. And I wanted that to be, I wanted that tone to kind of carry into the illustrations. And I wanted there to be a perspective on the illustrations in the same way like Roz Chast's work in the New Yorker, mm-hmm. you you sort of know, Beyond style, you know what kind of person Roz might be, given how she writes, and I wanted that to kind of come through in the illustrations. That it was, you know, we, this wasn't a sweet process. That this was kind of funny and quirky, and I, I did kind of want it to feel a little unexpected. How so I felt the humor could be punched up by the illustrations.
0: That's Amal Wilson talking about the book he illustrated, "How to Write a Novel in Twenty Pies." written by Amy Wallen, released in the fall of 2022 with Andrews McMeel Publishing. We'll be back with Amy and Emil after a quick break. Stay with us. You're tuned to Earth Eats, I'm Kate Young. Let's return to my conversation with Amy Wallen and Emil Wilson, creators of the book, How to Write a Novel in 20 Pies. Emil, I know, even though you didn't identify this in your introduction, that you are also a comic artist. And there are some really just full comic strips in here or like full pages. There's a spread, for instance, a two-page comic spread with the author character firing a cast of characters for the book once the author has decided to abandon an idea. And I was wondering if you could talk about how your it's really funny actually it's so funny. That's
2: a funeral pie,
0: right? <laughs> yes, that's right before the funeral pie. I like that one <laughs> segment. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how your comic making skills inform your illustration for this project, or just anything that comes to mind about that.
3: Well, in, interestingly, we work on this proposal. I I was in advertising for years, and then about four years ago. Three and a half years ago, decided to take a hiatus to work on some comics work. And I attended the Center for Cartoon Studies in Vermont. And so this proposal predates going to school. But then once I was in school and we were continuing with the pitch and continuing with producing the book, I wanted to bring comics into it just because I had, <laughs> I had done it. So I was like, I, you know, can we find an opportunity for that to happen? And as it was, I think that Amy was looking for a way to do different pies. And so there, I had offered to do a funeral pie. And the whole idea is that you, a funeral pie is what you take to a funeral. But in the case of this book, saying goodbye to characters that you're abandoning part of your book or abandoning the book in total. And so there's a funeral for it. And that just seemed like it was a really nice opportunity to do a comic
0: yeah yeah and I love it because then the next spread the comic sort of carries over, but then the recipe itself is highly illustrated and it's it's really beautiful, it's a really nice piece. had one other question about the relationship with the illustrations and pie. You guys aren't in the same city or? Yeah. So I'm guessing you didn't have pie together or bake pie together, but did Amy send you photographs of particular pies or was it really just kind of going with your own interpretation?
3: You know, I think there's a a hand pie, a Tibetan hand pie that she sent me pictures of because I didn't know how it was going to look. And other than that, I made it up as I went along. I mean, I, I come from a family that was very into pie. And, you know, the mythology in my family is that my mother was forced by her mother-in-law to make a pie a day when my grandmother lived with them before I was born. And even though that's a complete myth and a complete exaggeration, I know my mother well enough, I I felt pretty confident that I could draw pies. And and I, too, was a big fan of pie as well. So. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, yeah. Also, the the pies aren't particularly realistically rendered. They're just, you know, <laughs>
3: you mean pies don't dance. There, there's a, there's a lot of dancing pies. So yes, uh, no, they're not realistic.
0: Oh, uh, I just I just turned to the page of the lemon meringue toppings as hats. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> I had another topic that I wanted to to get into a little bit, which is saying more about how pie figures into really the structure of the book. You know, sometimes it's part of your own story, Amy, like when in the, in the memoir aspects of the book. Like, what do you do with a freezer full of salmon after you and your salmon fishing husband have split up? But other times it's about the process of, of book writing, like the funeral pie that we just talked about. And sometimes it's comfort food or symbolic, for instance, like the ice cream pie when navigating the world of agents when you're feeling like you want to scream, or the black and blueberry pie when dealing with rejection. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about how you thought about that that structuring and how you were going to work pie into this.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I actually... Uh, Emil and I bonded years and years ago over pie, um, back when we were uh, both writing books together. And, uh, and I think that I, you know, starting with that, where I knew that there's something about when you are writing having that comfort food and that need for comfort food, whether it's macaroni and cheese or whatever, and then you know, writing this, when we, when Emil and I did the proposal, you know, the first, again, it was kind of like Emil and the illustrations. The first five pies were pretty easy to think about. Like the black and blueberry for rejection was, was easy, right? I mean, you know, you're feeling a little bit beat up after all of that rejection. So that comes together. Chicken pot pie was my favorite and my first pie. So that also seemed like the, and that's sort of like the cliche comfort food. So that seemed like that's where we should begin. So that seemed perfect. So at that point then I knew I already had to have both sweet and savory. And then that lent itself to also how, you know, writing can be both a sweet and savory experience. But I also, you know, along the way, it became harder to try to figure out how the pie and the and the book were gonna be coming together There was another one, the warrior steak and cheddar pie. was a little easier because I felt like, okay, you've got this steak and cheddar. It sounds like, you know, a warrior pie. And that can go in a chapter when you're really, you know, making things happen and working towards things and you got to keep your, you know, spirits up and you got to be strong and get through something. And then it got, you know, more and more, a little harder. So then I started taking how I made a pie, like for instance, the lemon meringue pie is a good example because I hate meringue. I still hate meringue. And so I would not make a lemon meringue pie, but everybody was asking me for a lemon meringue pie. And I would make a meringue and it was lousy. And so I have this pie guru that I go to her workshops all the time. It's actually her recipe that I put in here, although I do change it up a little bit because I like to add some ginger. And that was the pie that I write about how you have to have teachers to help you out and you have to have a way of practicing and learning through stages from somebody that already knows how to do it really, really well. So then I started looking at pies in that way, not just like what they're called, but how did I come to that pie? You know, how did that pie become the pie that I was making? And like hand pies, you share. So you take that to your writing group. And I talk about writing groups and and things like that. And then, of course, I had the great idea where he's like, well, we need something when like, you know, what about a chapter on like when you, you know, have to just let go of a book, like you're done. It's clearly it's not working. You got to let go. And that's when the funeral. pie. He's like, what about the funeral pie? And that was his idea. And I thought that was perfect because it's true. There's just times when you're like, this just isn't working. And he did a real I mean, it's really sad. It's really hard. He did a fabulous comic that is absolutely hilarious about letting go, where the characters are like, wait, what? I was going to, you know, I was going to fall in love. And they're like, yeah, no, it wasn't going to work out. <laughs> and um, so it's, it's just, you know, things like that, I think, where I just started thinking about how the pies worked with the writing process, not just the name of the pie. And that's where more of those came along.
0: I also really liked how you talked about what some call the inner critic and how for you your own inner pie critic helped you help to kind of push you to learn to make your own pie crust. And I thought that was a real that was really interesting because you know a lot of times we're trying to push the inner critic out so we can, you know, get something done, but but it can also be useful.
2: Right, right, right. Yeah, that was definitely a situation where I had to listen to my inner critic so and learn how to make a pie crust, right? Yeah, that was really the hardest thing for me in the early stages was the pie crust, which it is for a lot of people. But perseverance plays a part in that too. So,
0: You already spoke about this a little bit, but I wanted to, to ask you about a couple of things, the Savory Salon
2: series. Sure. That was also as a teacher trying to figure out how to blend my pies and my, in the writing. Cause I, again, I feel like it's a comfort food. And so I started doing workshops in my home and manuscript workshops where people came and that not not just short story sort of stuff, but more like you brought a whole manuscript and we read them in advance and we'd spend a weekend. And because it was such an intense workshop, I made pie and served pie at the workshop. And that was part of it. And then the salons were, I knew because of working in New York and then also being in San Diego, I knew a lot of published authors. And when you're an aspiring writer you want to meet authors and find out their story and how did it happen and how do you get there and how do you get to be you? And so I would invite authors to come and spend a day in my living room and then invite like eight to ten people, you know, aspiring writers or even just readers to come and hang out with the author a day. And then you got to know them. And there's something about eating because there's, you get to know people so much more intimately over food than you do just you know, in a conversation on the phone or something like that. So or even just a reading at a bookstore.
0: Yeah, that's what I thought was interesting is the including the pie, including the food in these intimate discussions about an author's work or a celebration of their their work. That's awesome. And then you you mentioned this, but I would like to, to just hear a more thorough explanation about your nano Pymo.
2: Yes, nano Pymo. Uh it, was, it started off as a, a personal challenge, just to see if I could do it. You know, there was this, like I said, Nano NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month. And I was going to try to do that and bake a pie. I couldn't, you know, I can't leave well enough alone. So I was going to do my 1,000, my you know, 1,000, I think it's 1,700 words a day you're supposed to do in order to reach the 50,000 at the end of the month. It's a big, huge worldwide community that gets together to do this. So I was going to write and I was going to bake a pie a day, you know, up the ante. Well, I should say the writing went off into the Netherlands, but the pie baking I kept doing and I just was having a blast. I mean, at first I was kind of frantic and I, in fact, I even broke my flour jar like the first week, you know, because I was moving around so fast. But it, it ended up being, yes, it was a challenge I found at the end of the month. I knew more about pie. I felt more confident about my pie baking. I did it. I made 30 pies in 30 days. Gave them away. And it was kind of like a first come, first serve. Whoever wants to come by the house and pick up the pie, it's yours. And and I also just felt really, you know, like any challenge if you succeed at it, you feel really good and accomplished and just like writing a book and so I the next year came along and People were asking about it, you know, are you going to do Nano pymo again? I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? It was so much fun. So the second year I did it and that year people started paying for them. I can't remember exactly how that second year. Anyway, I'm I'm on my fourth year now, but the third year I decided, you know, I'm just doing it for fun for me. So I started auctioning off the pies instead because I'm like, okay, if people want to pay for them. I'd rather raise money and do it like a bake sale. And I worked, like I said, for this nonprofit. So I started doing it as an auction and I thought, oh, you know, I'll raise like 500 bucks. (laughs) And I ended up raising over $2,000. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do the same the fourth year. And this year I did it and people got, because now people know how it works and what's happening and they get excited and they they start strategizing on which pie, on what day. And and I don't have anything planned. I don't even know when I'm going to make a certain pie. But some people want the savories and some people want the sweet. Some people want the berry pie. And some people want it like it gets close to Thanksgiving. They want to stock up with the pecan and the, you know, the chocolate pie before Thanksgiving. And, you know. And so they start strategizing and, I, and they, start, they are bid each other. They also figure out, you know, just like a silent auction, like waiting until the last minute to send in their bid so they can get the higher bid you know, and, and outbid someone else. Anyway, I ended up uh, raising over $6,000 this year, you know, and I'm just making a pie. So people were really into it. They have fun, you know, and I'm exhausted at the end. So
0: The nonprofit that Amy raises money for is called Ocean Discovery Institute. We have a link on our website if you'd like to learn more. While Amy and Emil have a lot of fun with the pie recipes in this book, they are actual recipes like you'd find in a cookbook. I'm looking at the no guarantee peach pie, which is really completely illustrated. Emil has has illustrated every step You know, from selecting the peaches to getting the peaches peeled to to finishing the pie. And just as someone who does do a lot of baking, especially pie baking, I feel like the instructions are coming from someone who has made a lot of pies and who knows like, oh, if you don't do this, then your crust is not going to get brown all the way. Or if you don't add some thickener to this fruit, it's going to be too too juicy for your pie so yeah it just it feels like there's a lot of of attention to detail in a lot of these recipes so it is a book about writing but it is also a book about baking pie
2: yes what what were you going to say Oh, i was just going to give cr- credit to Emil for that peach pie because
3: this was his recipe that pie that specific pie is about every summer there's a batch of peaches that you eat there, there's a peach that you eat that's amazing and you're like I love that this is the best peach I've ever had. And that's the peach that you make this pie out of. And more times than not, you'll make this peach pie, which is unbaked. The the filling isn't baked, it's just fresh peaches. And there have been so many times that I've eaten that pie, and been like, ugh, these peaches are terrible. And it makes the pie as awful as you can imagine. It's just, it goes from being the most magical pie to being just like, let's just toss this in the garbage can. And that felt like a nice metaphor for writing because terrible peaches look like the good peaches so just when you bite into a peach sometimes you're like this is gonna be great oh this is terrible and vice versa and so I think that that's that 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 felt like a lot of the writing I do is where I think it's great and then start doing it and then it's oh no this isn't great at all (laughs) and vice versa so there you go
0: in conclusion, thank you both so much for talking with me. But I was wondering if you could each say what your favorite pie is.
2: That's always a hard one. Thank you so much, Kate. This has been a lot of fun. I'm I'm saying thank you in order to stall so I can tell you which pie, because I always have a hard time deciding. But I think for me, it is the salmon and portobello pie, that the recipe that's in here. It was one I created, but I also still love it. It's a favorite of mine.
3: Yes, Kate. Thank you for having us. My favorite pie is uh, a fresh apricot pie. My, my mother used to make a fresh apricot pie and there is a uh, very small window between it being too tart and it being too sweet. And she always seemed to get it perfectly. And it's magic.
0: That was Emil Wilson and Amy Wallen. Their book, How to Write a Novel in 20 Pies, came out in the fall of 2022 with Andrews McMeel Publishing. Amy Wallen's other books include the novel Moon Pies and Movie Stars and When We Were Ghouls, a memoir in ghost stories. Emil Wilson's comics can be found on The Nib and The Gutter, and we have links to both of these artists' work on our website, eartheats.org. Next up, we have a review of the podcast maintenance phase. This review comes to us from Earth Eats producer, Daniela Richardson.
4: Maybe you've fallen victim to a health or two. As both a young impressionable person and a fat person, I definitely can say that I have. What we've come to understand as quote unquote healthy eating is often misguided health information and an insane amount of anti-fat rhetoric all wrapped up in a pretty bow. In a world where skinny seems to be the goal, the things we eat quickly can become sources of judgment from others, and take on meanings that something like a sandwich probably shouldn't have. And more importantly, the lack of informed discourse on these health and wellness issues can get in the way of learning how to properly take care of ourselves. The podcast maintenance phase addresses this by, in their own words, debunking the junk science behind health fads, wellness scams, and nonsensical nutrition advice. Maintenance Phase was launched in October 2020 by its co hosts, Michael Hobbs and Aubrey Gordon. Hobbs is a journalist employed by HuffPost, and Gordon is an activist and author. Both write about the misinformation many of us receive about our health. The show brings a format that we don't often see in podcasts. In each episode, the hosts alternate roles. There's the teacher and the student, so to speak. One person will thoroughly research the chosen topic and present those facts in depth, while the other listens and offers insight, questions, and commentary as they go along. Their information is pretty easy to follow, and they cite sources that allow the audience to follow along with the host as they unpack their chosen topic. The hosts often start off the show with an unbiased position. They simply present the facts to their co-host and the audience. However, as it continues and the topic narrows, their personal views on the subject matter start to become very clear. The conversational nature of their show makes it feel inclusive to its listeners. Many podcasts can make you feel like you are observing through a window, but maintenance phase practically opens the door and pulls up a seat for you at the table. Along with this, they're humorous in their delivery and relatable in their responses to the research they present. They offer vulnerable and personal perspectives when needed and find ways to lift the mood if it gets too heavy. Essentially, the show spends its time debunking the myths of diet culture through storytelling. For instance, in one episode, they might expose the misinformation spread by a falsified weight loss program, and in another, they could pick apart the supposed health solutions offered by a celebrity-owned brand. They appear to enjoy the process of their celebrity takedowns, but at the same time, they simply expose the lies and share the truth. A recent favorite of mine was their episode titled, Is Being Fat Bad For You?, this episode dives into the years-long battle of data between epidemiologist Catherine Flegel and Walter Willett. Flegel conducted and published a study in 2005 that found being overweight was associated with a lower mortality rate compared to being a normal weight, and being obese was associated with a higher mortality rate. Willett disputed Fliegel's findings, prompting an academic battle that lasted almost a decade. Here's a short clip sharing a little bit of what Aubrey and Mike had to say about these events, starting with Catherine's research.
5: So basically, I mean, the the number one finding of her paper is that like people in the BMI overweight category are slightly less likely to die. So a little bit of fat has like some protective effect on mortality rates. The other big finding is that skinny people are more likely to die. So in the fattest category, like the obese category, she logs 26,000 deaths. In the skinniest category, she logs 33,000 deaths. Yep. So one of the quotes that goes around about this, this is sort of how it ends up in the mainstream media coverage of it, is given current government guidelines, it appears that the average person is better off being 50 or even 75 pounds overweight than five pounds underweight. This is a thing that also gets sort of thorny, right? It's worth noting, very thin people are more likely to die than very fat people. And yeah. there is no cause for you as a layperson, to then start talking to very fat people or very thin people about how they're going to die. I like it when you stand up for thin people. <laughs> I like it. Won't someone think of the thin? I like it when you say thin rates. <laughs> there's all kinds of actually cohort studies that show this same pattern of like this weird spike for thin people, a little bit reduced mortality for people that are like a little bit overweight, and then a higher curve for people that are like fat. Mm-hmm. They call it the U-shaped curve, even though it's like more like a Nike swoosh, but it's an extremely consistent finding in this kind of research. Huh. There, there's now these two papers, both of which are from the CDC saying completely different things from a political standpoint the show is clearly left leading
4: however it's much more than politics they want to inform and help individuals grow and shape their opinions with the whole truth of what is beneficial or harmful to their health beyond what society thinks a healthy body should look like as i said earlier i myself am a fat person i have been my whole life and coming across a piece of media like Maintenance Phase was a head-turner for me. I've never had any particular media that devoted itself fully to cracking down on the misinformation and harm that can come from the health and wellness industry. For reference, I come from a generation where the film Supersize Me was an educational tool used in my health class. And now, as many of us know, that film's message turned out to be saturated in a whole lot of bad science. Hearing the type of discourse that Maintenance Phase supplies provoked reflection for me. It made me think back to my early adolescence when any diet seemed like a good one, as long as the numbers on the scale would just go down. No one encouraged me to look into how the diets would serve my body or if they were even good for me at all. Maintenance Phase makes you stop and unpack the trends you decide to try and look further into the science and common sense behind them. They are the media a younger me wish she had had. It's important to remember that humans are diverse. We come in all shapes and sizes, and what works for one person's body may not work for another. We often let health and wellness science reduce our everyday lives down to trying our hardest to follow the designated and often arbitrary quote-unquote food rules, and those rules themselves can end up being harmful to us. However, food is meant to nourish us, not punish us. Maintenance phase reminds us of this. That was Daniela Richardson reviewing the podcast
0: Maintenance Phase, Wellness and Weight Loss Debunked and Decoded, with hosts Aubrey Gordon and Michael Hobbs. Daniela Richardson is a producer with Earth Eats through the Cox Legacy Scholars Program at Indiana University. She's also an Ernie Pyle Scholar at the IU Media School. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening,
4: and we'll see you next time. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young with help from Ayabon Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Samantha Shimmenauer, Peyton Welly, Harvest Public Media, and me, Daniela Richardson. Special thanks this week to Josephine McRobbie, Melanie Tefagen, Amy Wallen, and Emil Wilson. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby. And performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is John Bailey.